Welcome to The Tanya Acker Show. I'm Tanya Acker. What do you do when you feel like you're the target of unfair treatment at work? Well, maybe you run for your boss's job and win. That's what Sheriff-elect Charmaine McGuffey did. She is the first woman to be elected sheriff in Hamilton County, Ohio. She's also the first openly LGBT person to be elected sheriff. And she is here with me right now. Take a look and listen. Welcome, Sheriff-elect. Thank you for being here with me today. Thank you, Tanya. I appreciate that. So tell me, how does it feel to win? It feels thrilling. I mean, we worked so hard. You know, I've been campaigning for two years to get this job, and we've we've really had to hit some milestones. I first had to win the endorsement of the Democratic Party from the incumbent that I was going to run against, which I did do. Then I had to beat him in the primary election, which I did by 70 percent margin. And then I had to run against the Republican opponent, who I then beat by a sizable margin, 18,000 votes. You are the first woman elected sheriff in Hamilton County, Ohio. You're the first openly gay sheriff. You have blazed some trails, but your path to election, it's interesting. You talked about the Democratic incumbent. That used to be your boss. You worked for him. That's correct. I did. You were at the department for 33 years. You got promoted to major. Mm -hmm. As a result of an internal investigation, you were demoted and you left. I did. Then you filed a lawsuit. Tell me about that story. So as the major of jail and court services, I was in command of some 600 uniformed personnel and 1,400 prisoners. We had the third largest jail in the state of Ohio. And the sheriff, Jim Neal, he brought in a brand new internal affairs staff. And that internal affairs staff and I began to have some very serious disagreements almost right away because they were not holding officers accountable in their investigations and in their outcomes of their investigations for excessive use of force with prisoners. And secondly, they were not appropriately handling the sexual harassment of female officers by male officers and female inmates by male officers. So I began to complain about that. And I was very animate about complaining about it. And for the four, almost five years I was there, I continued to bring my complaints to the table. And I was told to be quiet. I was told to go with the flow. I was told to stand down. And I refused to do that. So that internal affairs section created a report that said I was hostile. And it was this voluminous report that was literally just filled with gossip and innuendo and just all manner of things that were not true. The sheriff took that report. He called me in on a Friday and he fired me. I had a 33-year career. I had a super successful career in that department. And in literally 20 minutes, I was gone. You knew him. He's the same sheriff who hired you, wasn't he? He was. He was the same sheriff who hired me. He and I had actually gone to the same high school together. We actually went to the University of Cincinnati together and got our bachelor's degree in criminal justice. We joined the sheriff's office right around the same time. His career path was a little bit different than mine, but yes, we knew each other very well. 
We're talking about former County Sheriff Neal, who in an interview actually said that because of your long relationship, uh, knowing each other, that he actually loves you. The case is pending in federal court. It's not pending here. The county's not here. They have denied the claims. But let me ask you this, Sheriff-elect. You know, I, I mm-hmm. just wrote a book about court, and I my point is to try to give people some sense of what it's like to be a litigant. What's it like being squared off in litigation against somebody who you've known as long as you knew or have known former Sheriff Neal? Oh, it's incredibly daunting. I mean, it's stressful like nothing else I've ever experienced in my life because I'm not a lawyer. I had to find attorneys who were recommended to me. You know, I had to start really understanding what the legalese and all the business was surrounding a civil lawsuit. Because, see, I've worked in the criminal justice field for years, but the civil world is different. And I want to note to you, I was going up against an 850 strong department. I mean, a huge police department that had some very, very powerful men running it, all men. In fact, I was the only woman as the major in that command staff. I understand in the lawsuit that you were seeking damages and reinstatement, but how does that work now? Because you actually (laughs) got the boss's job. So you could just like, what, reinstate yourself. I reinstate me for what the unfair thing that I think happened to me. But what happened on a serious note, what, what's going to happen to your lawsuit now? Well, and that remains to be seen because we do have a trial date here in December that's already been set. I did win the summary judgment. So we had three claims that I was wrongfully fired because I was a woman, wrongfully fired because I was a lesbian, and wrongfully fired because it is my civil right to bring forth complaints about violations of someone's civil rights inside that jail. And the judge, in this case, the federal judge, upheld all three of those arguments. So trial is set. Just to kind of break down what summary judgment means, Sheriff-elect, who was not then Sheriff-elect, but now Sheriff-elect McGuffey, brought a lawsuit. And then in order to get rid of the lawsuit, the other side filed what's known as a motion for summary judgment. Um, And it's something that I write about in the book. If you want to get rid of a case, you say the other side has no facts and you have to win as a matter of law. By defeating the other sides, by defeating the county's summary judgment motion, that was a finding by the court that there were triable issues of fact that a jury has the right to resolve. So the case is set to go forward to trial. Right. And something that's very significant that I like to note to people is when I originally filed this lawsuit about being fired because of my sexual orientation, there was no law against it. And then that was passed just recently. The Supreme Court came down with that ruling so we could then, it was then a viable claim. And I think that that's something that perhaps a lot of people may not realize that in many jurisdictions, it was absolutely legal to say, I don't want you working here because you are gay or or lesbian or transgender. The Supreme Court has recently upheld the right of gay and lesbian people to avail themselves of civil rights protections. So in the absence of that, what were you saying? Why were you going to court? Because it wasn't clear at the time that you had a firm legal basis for your claim. Mm -hmm. What was the basis for your claim? The basis for my claim was that I spoke out against wrongdoing and I was retaliated against for it. I was also harassed and sexually harassed and some hostile things happened to me 
as a result of my being a lesbian and being a woman. And you brought, there was another element to it, and you started to talk about it. You alleged that you were being retaliated against uh, for being a whistleblower because you had uh, taken a position against what you believed was an excessive use of force by uh, some folks in the department. So when you were running the jail, I mean, there were some interesting statistics that before all of this happened, you had a very successful career overseeing the jail. Uh, There was a, the county jail, in fact, had been rated below par, I, I think, for a number of years, and then you took it over and it was brought back up to standards. How did you do that? You've been lauded for your work in dealing with inmates who have addiction, substance abuse problems, for instance. What's your theory about how you address inmates in that circumstance? So when I took over that jail, I knew from working in that system for so many years that we were working with a 1950s model. And it was my goal to accelerate us out of that. And in doing so, I improved that jail, the way that we worked, the reporting efforts, the training, the use of force policies, all of those things were improved under my watch, and we became the best ranked jail in the state of Ohio. Simultaneously, I recognized that we had prisoners suffering in our jail from addiction, mental illness, and quite frankly, some other social ills where people just struggle in life. So I created a women's heroin recovery program that was quite successful. I created a men's veterans program for men who were veterans who struggle with housing and PTSD issues. And then I created a men's exit program so that men that were getting out of jail could be connected to services many weeks, days, months before that door ever opened and they could start their life with something in their hand versus leaving our jail with nothing. And that's typically what was happening in that 1950s model. What's the status of that jail now? And are these programs still in effect? The programs are still in effect because it took me two years to build them, quite frankly, and get them moving. And they're built on very, very strong foundations. Um, And that's why it took me so long to install them. But they're not well supported. They're not as productive as they were when I was there as the boss, because a lot of that caring about those programs and the success of them comes from the top down. Uh, The state of that jail now, as I understand it, is horrible. The cleaning protocols have not been kept up. It's very, very dirty. There's mold. There's the prisoners get locked in for sometimes 23 hours a day for days and days and days on time across the board. The staffing issues are bad, badly managed. So, yeah, it's when I left, it began to decline. How are you going to fix that? Well, I'm going to bring in the basics again, just as I did. I'm going to put the right people in the right positions. And I think that's what Jim Neal, the uh, former sheriff now, I think that's what he failed on. He did not recognize his talent, nor did he have his hand on the wheel day to day. I think he was always very distracted with other things and just really not interested in being a boss who is hands on and makes sure that things happen. So let's go back to this pending lawsuit for a minute, because you talked about being unfamiliar with civil court, and that's my wheelhouse, right? It is uncertain. I don't like to say it's always a roll of the dice, but it's unpredictable. You know, anything can happen. Mm -hmm. 
What happens if some jurors say, you know what, we agree with the county and we don't think that this happened because she was a lesbian and we don't buy the whistleblower allegations? What happens if you lose? What will you do then? I will know that I did my best to do the right thing. If I lose, I'll know that I stood up for what was right. I'm going to continue to stand on that. I know I'm right. And I'm going to move on with my life. And I will be very clear about that. I'll answer any questions. And in fact, as I was campaigning, believe me, these questions came up. And anywhere I went, I told people, hey, you know, nothing's off the table. Ask me anything you want. And I will be very clear with you and transparent. So I'll be transparent. I'll be super disappointed, obviously, because I think anybody that looks at the facts of what actually happened, I don't know how you can not find in my favor, quite frankly. I don't think that a lot of people have a good appreciation for how much you've got to reveal when you're in litigation and how, you know, somebody can say something about you and you may dispute it, but it's out there. I mean, the county, for instance, you know, you were accused of creating a hostile work environment. They say that you made false statements. Your response to the hostile work environment claim, at least as I understand it, was that they were imposing on you stereotypes, heterosexual stereotypes of passivity and femininity Mm -hmm. with some of the language from your lawsuit. Give me some examples of what you mean by that. Well, you know, as I started out as the major and I had to make changes because it was a transition. So certain captains and things and people that were within my command, I had to give them direction and so forth and start holding people accountable for things. And I got quite a bit of pushback from the men who were my captains who didn't want to follow my instructions, my orders, et cetera. So we ended up in front of the sheriff very immediately. I knew to do that. That's insubordination and that's serious. And I fully expected to be right, you know, disciplining those men and getting that that situation remedied. And Jim Neal looked at me and said, well, after he heard all the issues and so forth, He said, well, I just want to tell you, Charmaine, these men don't like working for a woman. They just don't like it. And then he said, I want you to let them do their thing. I don't want you to interfere with what they're doing. And and I was amazed at that. And I pointed out to him, I said, Sheriff, they're my subordinates. These are men that work for me. Well, they don't like working for a woman. So you have to take that into account. And the next thing he told me is, you know, I really want you to try to get along with them. That's what I was told to do. You know, again, and I certainly am not passing on the validity of the claims. This is the Tanya Acker Show podcast. Your case isn't on hot bench. It's before a real federal court. (laughs) It's before a federal court. But I, I, I will say this. I can't think of very many women who have worked in professional environments who have not at some point been told, you got to calm down. You know, even when you're the boss or, or you're in a, a position of power and somebody underneath you, they may not like working for a woman or a black woman or a lesbian. There are all of these other layers, you know, attached to uh, different people's ideas about how women should be. Yes. And so think about what it is you would say to a young woman out there, because it's something I think about all the time. You can't fight every battle. You really can't. No. Or you won't get any work done. You really can't. By the same token, you have to learn how to draw lines in a way where you're not diminishing your effectiveness. What's your advice to women who are struggling with how to respond to that while you know still being effective? 
my suggestion is one, you have to realize that those situations take a tremendous amount of patience and strength. You have to be patient to let all of the cards play out and then look at the cards you're dealt, decide which cards you can play in your favor, meaning what kind of documentation do you have? Who do you have on your side in the rank? Is there somebody that will champion your story with you, that will stand by you? And you have to strategize. And that's what I did to survive. Throughout my career, I was challenged, oh, many times. And I strategized. I, I worked a plan and I spoke to different people behind the scenes and I made phone calls. And I just was never, ever willing to give up the fact that this is my authority. And one of the things I always would say to myself, or, or I guess a little mantra I had, if you want to call it that, is I took the power I needed. And my goal was when I needed power, I asserted it. When there were times when I felt, hey, this is this is not the battle for me right here. I'll just take it on the chin. I took some hits. I You're going to have bruises, bruises and bumps, and you have to be ready for that because that's it. You can't come across as every little slight is going to mean some big deal for you. Pick and choose, just as you said, but then you can't let go of it. You have to really keep at it. I think it's so important to break down what you said. One, you've got to really take a, a realistic look at the lay of the land. Mm -hmm. You know, see what you can prove, see who is going to support you, see who is going to undermine you. Right. You know, know the places where you got to watch your back and where you're vulnerable because people may come after you because you also have to realize that sometimes there are strategies to really discourage you. You know, they're th it's intended to keep you off track and to keep you off mission. You were interested in a career in law enforcement from the time you were quite young, and there were attempts to discourage you then. I think I read something that said when you were 14, you uh, were told that women don't do that job. That's right. Tell me about that, and tell me also why you decided you weren't going to listen to that nonsense. Well, you know, I had thought long and hard when I was 14 as to what I was going to do. I came up in a single-parent household my mom was very, very focused on myself and my two sisters. What are you going to do to make a living? So it was something that was talked about quite a bit. I decided I wanted to be a police officer. I announced that. And my uncle, who was himself a retired police officer, immediately told me, that's just not going to happen, Charmaine. You're not going to do that. Women can't be cops. I wouldn't want to work with a woman as a cop. And these are things that he just said to me, you know, my family had a way of being very frank with each other. And in fact, he was right. Women could not be in uniform at that time, nor could they be on the road. They could never be a peer with a man. And the reason I didn't listen to him, and in fact, as he was explaining all that to me, I was already planning in my head how I'm going to get it done. And I attribute that to people say how. I attribute that to the fact that I watched my mom, who was a tremendously strong, wonderful person. I watched her do the impossible so many times as a single parent, keeping us with a roof over our head, supporting us literally on her own. Yeah, my father, uh, he was gone at a very early time in my life. So I knew my mom was my role model and she didn't stand down for anything. And, you know, when you're hearing that kind of discouragement from somebody who you love, I mean, in this case, it was your uncle it can really sink in. But you made a decision that it wasn't going to, and you had an incredible female role model at which to turn. And you realize that now you are becoming an incredible role model uh, for women, for young women, for young LGBT women. I mean, it is 
really the first woman to be sheriff in that county, accomplished by someone who was told that women could never do the job. That in and of itself is remarkable, and that's going to help change some young girl's life. Before we go, I, I want to talk to you about what comes next, because, you know, we talked a little bit about your theory of managing the jail. And, you know, I, I know that you've uh, been very insistent on finding ways for inmates to turn their lives around so they can get out of that pipeline. Making history is not going to insulate you from some of the challenges that lay ahead. Uh, you have said that it's important to you that you keep communities safe while you also try to challenge a lot of the racial inequities and the bias that has happened. How are you going to do that? What is the Sheriff McGuffey strategy? My strategy is first to begin with a very in-depth degree, if I can say it that way, of transparency with the community. I want to bring the community in. I'm going to start a citizens review board, and that's going to be voluntary. My department is not made to do it. We'll be the first sheriff's office in the state of Ohio to do it on a voluntary basis. And I will open the books to those men and women who come from every representative of every community in our Hamilton County. The second thing I will do is just what I've always done. I'm a very law and order candidate. I do not put up with nonsense. And everybody who's ever worked with me knows it. And that includes the officers. That includes the prisoners. They know I'm no nonsense. I care about them. I'm going to help them in every way I can. And the officers know I care about them. But that's the way I run my shop. I don't deviate. I'm a plain talker. I call it like I see it. You never have to guess with me where you stand. And I think that honesty plays through even to men and women who may not support me in some way, who may have some kind of uh, issue with me being where I am. And you're exactly right. I do have to be careful. I've already had phone calls. Uh, from various people inside the department. Hey, you better watch out. They're planning to do this, that, and the other thing. And I, you know, I'm just not daunted by it. I've been dealing with that my entire career. Like what? What kind of phone calls? Phone calls like, oh, hey, these guys are planning on trying to record you when you don't know that you're being recorded. Well, they tried that before and that didn't work. They recorded me lots of times and there was nothing on the recording that could be used against me. And one of the things they've already done is they have promoted certain men to certain union positions, high positions, so that those men can influence policy against me. They can work against me if they choose to. They can join up and make things very, very difficult for me. So how are you going to be effective in the face of that type of, you know, it sounds like it's pretty entrenched resistance. How are you going to overcome it? Mm -hmm. Well, because that amount of resistance is really much smaller than the bulk of the department that backs me. I have a tremendous amount of support in the rank and file among the supervisors and the people who support me. I mean, they support me. They're going to stand by me through thick and thin. And those are the people that are coming to my command table. And they're going to not only support me, but they're going to help me move this thing forward. And for those men and women that don't want to go along, I'm going to document. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to document every little thing. And they won't like it if they do something really, really shady and I take it to the press <laughs> because I will. <whip. laughs> 
<laughs> you just said, you know what? Don't come for me because I'll come right back. I'm not shy. That's right. I want to end on the note that you just made about all of the people who are supporting progress, who are supporting change, um, you know, regardless of the outcome of the litigation or whether or not it settles. I think that what you have done in terms of creating another role model of leadership for young women in this country and young women in law enforcement, uh, frankly, at a time when it's not real popular uh, to say, I want to be in law enforcement. I think what you've done is really remarkable, and it's going to give a lot of young girls uh, something uh, to think about. So I appreciate you. I appreciate your time. Thank you for being here, Sheriff-elect. Good luck to you. And thank you. Thank you so much, Tanya. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you very much. Take care. The Tanya Acker Show is written and executive produced by me. Sam Fergoso is my producer. Andre Lynn is my editor. Cole Mitchell is my composer. Sydney Freeman is my production assistant. And my show dog is Maximus Justice, also known as Max. If you like us, please go on to iTunes and leave a five-star review. Maybe I'll even have the chance to read it on the air. I will give you my hugest and most profuse thanks if you do. Thanks for listening, everybody. 